flourish, to live to your highest purpose. Not just to survive, but to thrive. God wants it for you even more than you want it for yourself. The Bible tells you that you're broken, but you're not abandoned like a junk car. It tells you that you have infinite worth because you bear the image of God. And Jesus doesn't just provide a vision for you to pursue. He does more. You see, Jesus provides the heart cure and renewal in your soul that enables you to actually pursue and experience flourishing. Because all of us are broken, we can be honest. Because all of us bear God's image, we can be hope-filled. You live in a broken world with a divine blueprint and a heavenly trajectory that is yours through faith in Christ. Yes, you're broken, but you have this divine blueprint and a glorious future that belongs to you through faith in Christ. Jesus gives you a new identity. He gives you a new sense of belonging, and he gives you a new purpose. Jesus Christ said, I came that you might have life and have life abundantly. Such good news as we begin this series that the God who made us wants us to flourish. He wants it more than we could imagine for ourselves. And so as we crack open the first words of the Bible, it gives us some indications of some of the things that we need, a couple of things we need, especially if we're going to be able to flourish. And I think as, as the veil is pulled back, on creation, on the the visible object of creation, just the first four words of the Bible, in the beginning, God. Just just that. In the beginning, God. It it puts us in the nosebleed section of philosophy. In the beginning, God is there. And in that beginning and out of that beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void and darkness covered the surface of the deep and the spirit of God hovered over the waters. That's, that's how it begins. And I'm, I'm convinced um, after some 30 years of preaching and uh, thinking about this, that Genesis one is more poetry and, and almost really a burst into song than it is something that we push the details of explanation on. And, and that also serves our purpose uh, in, in understanding it. How, how many of you um, remember, like I'm older than the internet. We have a lot of people here older than the internet. <laughs> like I, I remember opening technology and I'm like, like technology to me is, for some people it's a tool, you understand it and you, you know, for me it's a device. And, and I just, I, you, I'm a dummy who uses it. It's like my TV, I have no idea how it works, but I just like, I like it, I like screens. Like, and I remember the first time I, I opened an iPad box, right? And it's an amazing piece of equipment, right? And, and as I open it, I know the questions that I had as someone who's not particularly a, a technophile, was, were, they were not questions like, huh, what kind of metals were made? I mean, how many African countries did we have to exploit to get the metals that make this thing work? <laughs> or how long does it take to manufacture this? Or, or um, you know, how many people were involved in the chain of... What I wanted to know is like, why? Like, what is this screen? What does it, it do? I, I wasn't asking all of those background questions. And I think ultimately Genesis is helping us answer the question of why do we live in the world as it is? Um, uh, why did God make it? What's it for? Um, why do we feel the way that we feel about life as we live in this world? 
rather than how long did he take to make it and exactly how did it happen. And I, and I think we see that it, it comes to us as kind of a poetic form. In the Bible, um, I don't know whether you ever took a uh, Bible as a literature course in college. They love to start with Genesis and say, see, you've got two contradictory stories, chapter one and then chapter two retells it. Have you ever had that? Some of you remember that? Like they say, Genesis contradicts itself within one chapter. Um, and it's really a statement of ignorance about the Bible because throughout the Bible, often stories, dramatic stories are told back to back in different ways. A couple examples of that in, in Exodus 14, it describes Israel being freed from Egypt and the Red Sea parting. But chapter 14 has a different account. It's Miriam's song and she gives praise to God for it. Um, in the book of Judges, it describes how Israel fended off an invasion. And then in the very next chapter, there's Deborah's song, a different kind of account. And, and Genesis begins this way with this repetition. You know how songs have repetition? And, and eight times in bringing different things into, into the world, it says, and then God said, and then God said, and then God said. And, and it segments it all off for us. And all that is, is the point of the Genesis one is it's not so much answering the question how, pressing all the details as it is to talk about why. And, and, and the first clue, I think, comes in that repetition of God bringing the earth and, and the heavens into existence simply by his word, let there be. You know that, he, his word is so powerful, unlike our words, if we say like, let there be something, let there be light or whatever, so we, we've got to either have a very obedient child, a very obedient dog, um, <laughs> talented dog, um, or, or a very attentive assistant helping us do those things. But God's word is so powerful, it activates, but not only that, the Bible actually, even in the Old Testament, discloses that that word that brought everything into actuality was Jesus. Uh, Proverbs chapter eight puts it this way. It's, it, it personifies the creation of the world with, with an assistant to God who is the equal of God. And, and Proverbs eight says, when God marked out the foundations of the earth, there I was beside him like a master workman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in the, his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. And it's not till the New Testament that it's really revealed that it was in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And apart from him, nothing was made that ever was made. Colossians 1 tells us things visible and things invisible. And, and so what we see about this, it's very different than any other account of creation. God didn't create us out of his loneliness, not out of his void, not out of some kind of sense of competition like the polytheist. But God created us out of this, this fullness of relationship. And, and, and really, in a sense, it was in the, in the inner relationship of fullness that God created the, the whole context for there to be more who would join in the fellowship that God enjoyed. In other words, if you don't have a God who was Trinity, and I know when we say Trinity, you're pretty fast in the nosebleed section again, right? Uh, uh, one God, three persons. But I love what C.S. Lewis used to say to people who said, I can't believe in a God who is one and a God who is three. And he says, if you believe in a God who is less than one and three, you believe in an imperfect God. Because our God is so perfect that he never had to learn to love. Love has always been in his nature. If you have a solitary being, then one day he learned how to communicate. <laughs> and, and not with that interchange. Do you see that? That, that, that to say this, this, this is part of the relational context, you cannot flourish unless you understand the reason you were brought into the world is to have an encounter and an engagement and a fellowship with the Trinity of God. Amen. 
There's that, that, that mystical aspect of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit just kind of cascading over each other. And in the midst of the bosom of that, in a sense, the purpose of creation is that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit said, let's open up the circle and let's invite some other people in to give praise and, and to enjoy the richness and the fullness. And, and we see a second clue to that. And it's something, it's one reason I love being a preacher because I never discovered this before after, after all these years preaching till, till this time. The word for, that describes the spirit of God hovers over the waters. That word for hovering is a unique Hebrew word and it's only ever used in the Hebrew for mother birds. It means a mother bird hovering and fluttering over her nest and her wings are out over her babies and the eggs she's trying to help hatch or over the young she's trying to teach fly. It's, it's not an impersonal thing. Have you ever thought, I've thought this about the Holy Spirit and it's a degrading thought. I've thought of him just like a force. May the force be with you. <laughs> you know, uh, an anonymous, impersonal, you know, like a diffused gas or like a foggy mist, the, the spirits over the waters. That's wrong. It's, it's the, 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 it's as fully the personality, the divine personality fills who the Holy Spirit is. You're not just a life force. And so this loving, nurturing, delighting force and the Holy Spirit is delighting in the creation. And, and so we, we, we have a, a, a third clue is in verse 26 where you have God speaking within that trinity and he says, let us make man in our image. And some people said, well, is that including the angels? No, we're not made in the angel's image. But it's like this, this inner dialogue, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And so it's, it's imprinting that upon us. And so it's saying that while the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, heaven is this perfect community of love and trust and delight while they were enjoying each other's beauty and this pouring and outpouring of praise and delight was going on. One day they said, let's expand the circle. Let's expand the community. Let's create beings who can become part of this circle of praise. Let's create more image bearers. And so this whole context, this whole creation is that place of, of delight and glory and, and here's something we need. If we're going to understand this, we've got to allow ourselves to be re-enchanted with the world that produced the world that we see. We've got to be re-enchanted with the world that we see because we understand that there is the supernatural world of light and glory and love that produced it. And that's, that's part of being image bearers in this world. And, and so we see the, the why explanation all wrapped up in that, in, in the marvels of creation. And, and so this creative force, and, and again, nothing was made apart from the, the being and person of Jesus, but you think of, of the wonders of creation. You know, like on a clear night, especially if, if you have a telescope, have you ever seen the galaxy Andromeda? How many of you, like, taken out a telescope? Do you have anybody who's done that? Yeah, good for you. <laughs> the rest of us have got to find that neighbor or friend with a telescope. You can, you can see it. And it's, it's 2.5 million light years away from us which means that if you and I could travel at the speed of light, it would only take us 2.5 million years. Or another way to look at it is, and, and there's, you know that there's, they estimate there's at least a trillion stars in that galaxy that's 2.5 million light years away, a trillion. <laughs> 
Um, I, I love the throwaway line in chapter two when it says, and, and God made the stars also. <laughs> like a trillion stars in Andromeda, 2.5 million light years away. If God somehow decided, I'm gonna turn off the lights of Andromeda, we wouldn't notice it for 2.5 million years. <laughs> And I think God, the Spirit, and the Son, and the Father enjoy just letting that light that he, as he created Andromeda, let it, let, you know, just watched for 2.5 million years, because God's never in a hurry about anything, and just watched until that light finally could be seen from Earth. Like, I just, I just, and, and, and so the, the delight of, of all of this is this God who is overflowing with life and wants to invite us into the dance. That, that, this is, this is the purpose, and yet, our hearts don't experience the world this way. There's this thing called sin in the fall, and so we don't naturally experience it. We need to be redeemed. We need Jesus to lift us out of it. We've gotta have something happen to us so that we can become partakers of the divine nature and be invited in to the, to the fellowship even of, of, of the Trinity. God remains God uniquely, but we're, as image bearers, invited in. And we're invited to join the choir. I, I love the words of a, of a, a Jewish writer wrote in, the, in the 1940s, Simone Weil. Um, she um, became a Christian, a Messianic Christian, and, and she had some interesting things to write about nature. She says, the love we feel for the splendor of the heavens, the plains, the sea, the mountains, and for the silence which is borne in upon us by thousands of tiny sounds. I just love that description because this time of year, you can hear those sounds, right? The crickets are like, they're, they're playing their fiddles, you know, and you know, you can actually, there's a formula by which you can tell what the temperature is outside by counting the cricket chirps. Did you know that? <laughs> like they're, they're wired in and, and, and at this time of year, they know they've only got so many evening concerts before frost hits and you know, they, they're gonna put their instruments down. But, but all of these sounds, and, and she describes them as this silence that presses in upon us with thousands of little sounds. And she says, the breath of the winds or the warmth of the sun, this love which every human being has at least an inkling of, this love of all of this splendor and glory and the, and the sounds and the, the frequencies of the sounds. You know, if you have really careful measuring devices, even earthworms make noise. The only, the only animals we really have in our, our, I have a worm farm and I'm like, I just wonder like, ah, I can't hear them, but I'm told it's beautiful. <laughs> But, but she says, all of this is incomplete and painful. Why is it painful, Simone? Why is it painful? And she writes as a Christian, she says, it calls us in, but we can't get in, not, not of ourselves. We need Jesus. We've, we need to be redeemed in order to get in. Um, C.S. Lewis writes it this way. He says, we do not want to just see beauty when we look at nature, and, and he's not saying mother nature in a way that excludes God. He's speaking in the way the Bible speaks. When it uses the word nature, it's speaking of God's dependent work. And it says, we want something else which we can hardly put into words. When we experience beauty, we want to be united with the beauty we see. We want to like pass into it. We want to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. And so we come right up to the threshold. And so it's like the most beautiful day we enjoyed in the summer on the best day of, the, of a good vacation and we're like, we experience everything good and, and then we just feel this kind of, ah, oh, it's over. And we don't wanna be that spoiled brat child who has a whole day at the amusement park where they get cotton candy and all the rides they want and finally, end, but they leave in a temper tantrum because it's not enough. But there's something in us that just says, ah, oh, 
I wish I, wish I didn't, I mean, I, I love traveling south to the beach, but I don't like the northward drive home, right? But I feel like a spoiled child, but, but there's that. It happens to us sometimes when we take in a symphony or what Lewis is saying in some act of beauty that we say, ah, but I, I can't quite enter in. And, and, and that's because the fall happened. Sin came into the world and it has to be addressed by Jesus. The Bible confronts us with that, right? The, the sin came into the world on like page three and the rest of the Bible up till page 1098 is all in that context, right? And then we get the new creation coming down out of heaven to fill the earth. And, and we get glimpses that we were made and, and we won't be able to enter into it um, fully and completely apart from faith in Christ and then ultimately in heaven itself. I, I love and am moved by the words that Dwight L. Moody was said to speak on his deathbed. He was a great evangelist and he lingered for a while and, he, and, and his loved ones gathered around him and he had, uh, was just at the very end of his life and he had lost two grandchildren and right as his life was fading from him, he says, I see Dwight and I see Irene. They're beautiful. And then his next words are, it's more beautiful than anyone could ever describe it to you. And he, and he saw that world, that world of, of solidity, the world of, of heaven coming down. It's not, you know, the, the answer of the Bible is not beam me up. The answer the Bible has is bring it, bring it down. That's what Revelation does. The, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and filling this earth, a place of righteousness. It's not beam me up and let me escape out of here. It's rather come and inhabit this world that is yours by right. You're the creator and yours through the blood of Christ. And God loves this world. In its fallenness, I, I love Colossians chapter one. And this is something else. I really just noticed this week. Um, in Colossians one, it describes Jesus and it says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In other words, he wasn't created. He didn't have this beginning like the rest of creation does. And it says, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers of authorities, all these things were created through him and for him. And, and, and it, when it gets to redemption, and it says, for in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. And it begins not with us, but with heaven and earth. Amen. He loves his creation. We can forget in Genesis that, you know, God said it is good five times before he made us. Like, hey, we weren't even there. It's kind of like in, in our family, we kind of joke that our, our youngest child sometimes hears the oldest siblings talking about vacations they never got to go on. And they're like, hey, I never got to go to Ocean City, Maryland. I'm like, yeah, you didn't. We changed it up. Um, you know, so get over yourself. You know, but, but we all kind of, we have that. Like, like, like the creation of God, like we have this horrible flaw that sin has allowed us to conceive of maybe created reality exists and there's no creator. Do you know, like that's, that's an unthinkable thought to the angels in their perfect holiness, in the reality. But it, it was more of an unthinkable thought in our world in many ways than it is now. But we have people who think like, yeah, you could have all of this and not have a God. But no, 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 the reverse is true. You could have all of this and not have us. But God wanted to fill the earth out of his love with, with people who would, would bear his image and express who he is. And so he gives us the why. 
I, I, I love the work of Francis Collins who discovered the, the spelling of the human genome and he's written a great book called The Language of God. And in, in describing this and breaking down again some of, the, some of the processes locked into creation, he, he says this, he says, the DNA sequence alone, even if accompanied by a vast new trove of data on biological function, even if it were accompanied by all this other stuff, it will never explain certain special human attributes, such as the knowledge of the moral law and the universal search for God. Where's that come from? It's not in the, it's not in the DNA code. You can't free you know, the, God by explaining him away or making him a mechanical force of natural law. Um, he's the source of all things that make humanity special and the universe itself. And so in uncovering all of these things, Francis Collins just says that, that the wonder and splendor increases. I mean, I love it that they've, they've uncovered things. Like, like he said, sickle cell anemia is gonna be virtually cured in our lifetime or it's gonna be a disease you can live with. There's 700 diseases. They can, they can find out what's broken and, 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 and with care be able to do some of the redemptive repair work. That's an incredible thing. But he says, none of that will ever explain away the God who implanted so many wonders in us that will never be explained in that way. And so all of this is pointing us for, for an encounter with God, for a relationship with God. That's, that's the purpose of the world we live in. And unless we re-enchant ourselves out of, out of our plastic encased lives, out, out of lives that can get caught up in, a, in taking pictures so that others can enjoy what we are not in the present moment all that engaged with. I mean, there'll be better pictures on the internet, I'm convinced, like just take the one with you in it for the selfie and then like enjoy, be in the moment. And, and, and so it's all crying out for us that God is making room in, in, in the circle of his community so that we join in the, in the delight, in the love, in the, in the absolute unity. And he's, he's done it at the cost of Jesus. He's made this possible. So we've got to be re-enchanted with the world that produced this world so that we can live as this world as an encounter with God. But along the way, we, ha we have so many different opportunities to encounter God and to stop and join in and give glory. We cannot flourish apart from worshiping. We cannot flourish apart from joining in that fellowship. That's the first part of Genesis. And I think all of the Bible is pointing us to that from cover to cover that God wants us to get back into that place. But the second thing in Genesis 1 is not just enchantment with the God who made this world, but it is to express yourself as an image bearer of God in that unique way that rules and brings order to this, to this world. And so it's not only to be enchanted, but it's to express yourself as a creative image bearer. You see, because our creator is so creative, there are not just some people who are creative. We all have this creative potential and this creative task and we're entrusted with bearing God's image in, in drawing things out of this earth. And so God actually assigns real tasks to us. I mean, he doesn't do it for us and you know, heaven is not sitting on a cloud with a harp and, and, and we've got instant room service for things. The, the, the original design was Without sin, there are tasks to be done in a perfect world. Now that would greatly improve our world. It would greatly improve my gardening because it would mean when I go on vacation, nothing bad would happen because there's no thorns and thistles, no lantern flies, no, 
Nothing that's gonna come destroy it, so it could just kind of stay. But the problem is, because of the fall, if I leave my garden for five days, it's chaos. So I've done that this summer. I've experienced that. It gets unleashed. And that's just a picture of my untended heart. Basically, God says when we kicked him out, when we, when we demoted him, he said, hey, I'm not going to let you live a life that is just this smooth, surrendered world to your exploits and your you're taking dominion over it and then you're gonna find out you have an argument with me, you're gonna see that what this world does to you, what my garden does to me, thistles and thorns and all kinds of things that appear that I don't want there, all kinds of, of opportunistic insects that are just designed to, one cucumber beetle bites the vine and the whole thing tanks, like it's just like amazing destructive acts. He says, that's your heart, untended. That's how your heart responds to me and, and so, he calls us, though, to still cultivate in the midst of this fallen world. But we were going to do it in an unfallen world. And it was part of this task that we would live in harmony with, with and, and yet be workers. Not We wouldn't exploit it. Again, the angels love and the Trinity loves this creation. So don't exploit it because you're taking away its ability to, in a pristine way, give God glory. Every Christian should be truly a holy environmentalist saying, I want everything to be in its pristine form. I want to maintain it. I want my impact not to be one that's exploitative. I'm not going to exploit it. I'm not going to worship creation. I'm not going to exploit it. I'm not going to ignore it. I'm going to cultivate it. And so initially, we all were farmers. I want to say, like, how many of you in this room make your living, 100% of your living, by being farmers? Raise your hand. I mean, you, you deserve my admiration. How many? Do we have anybody? <laughs> That's shocking. It's shocking for, for our world. But, but in our world now, because of what's happened, and I think some of it's because of our fallen world we live in, there's only 2% of the people in our world that are growing all the food that we depend on uh, for our for our delight and for our well-being, only 2%. But you know, if I'd ask you that question in 1900, about 60% of you would have raised your hands. How many of you had parents who were full-time farmers? Some of you, a few, few hands go up. How many had grandparents who were full-time farmers? How many of you had great, 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 grandparents? Everybody's hands go up, right? But we lived in this, we were cultivating um, and, and, and we had to, so we lived close. I had the benefit of grandparents who were farmers. And so when I would hear them pray um, for the Lord to send rain, it was with some fervency because if rain didn't come, that yield would not be enough to produce profits so they could buy seed for the next year. And I remember my grandfather who, was, who loved Jesus and just said, you know, I've farmed for over 45 years and there's never been a time where the Lord wasn't faithful in allowing us to make enough, to buy enough, to get ourselves through the winter to go the next round. But that's amazing in a falling world. Well, we were meant to cultivate, and, and so we're not, we don't have to all be farmers, but we are all called to order this world, to develop the raw materials out there. And again, this was true before the fall. So you know, in the Garden of Eden, there was amazing food, like no food I think we've probably eaten, would be my, my guess anyway. We don't have all the details how things change, but my guess is that sin affected that and our taste buds. But there were no honey crisp apples in the Garden of Eden. You like honey crisp apples? They're amazing, so sweet. Now I think the most ordinary apple in Eden, is, but, but somebody had to develop honey crisp apples. Do you know it was, it was a student at Wheaton College that figured out how to 
used what was within apples to create this variety that now everybody loves. It's all the rage. You know, you take your pets, like, you know, we have this bootleg little schnauzer. Like, I have to break it to him. Like, there were no schnauzers in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> that took years and years of breeding for that little beard and that perky little face and, you know, all those things. There were no poodles. There were no, no offense to our, our dog over here. You know, that, that wasn't in the Garden of Eden. But all the, all the canine materials were there. Um, so that, that it could be developed genetically. So in the animal world, in the, in the plant world, uh, those things could be developed. Now because of sin, do you know what happens if we don't take some care into how dogs are bred at least? Like if we just did nothing and just let them run wild, they would become this mongrel attack variety that we could never domesticate and could never be in our home because that's what the fall does. It messes it up. We're still this restraint. We're still bringing this order in, in that area and in all areas of the world. And, and so we're, we're called as, as image bearers to, to live in this way and to bring order out of these things. Uh, my favorite museum in Washington, D.C. is the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. And, and it's a floor that most people don't get to because their kids usually wig out before they can get to this floor. We learned by living close by that you go to that floor first before your kids start to wig out. And, and it, it's all these minerals. And it's like all these gemstones and all these different colors, like every color that you could ever imagine and more and every kind of geometric design that we think we invented. And 99 point some percent of the world has never ever seen this, all of these wonders, but God every day saw it, the spirit, the son, the father, all every day enjoying all that he had buried in the earth for us to uncover and cultivate and, and to make something with. And, and so what is, what is this cultivation? It's the development of culture under God that we're the only ones doing that. Yeah, the crickets make sounds, but they don't write symphonies. And, and we can, different ones can write symphonies that will make us just move to tears and experience the transcendence that something far bigger than us has created the sounds and the ability of the ears to hear it and the heart that just is moved and it brings us right up to that threshold, but it's this painful, like, ah, oh, but I can't fully get in. Only Jesus can bring us into that point, but we, the, the culture is really what we make of the world that God made. It's what we make of it mentally. It's what we make of the raw materials, and it means that every vocation that we have is, is called to be engaged in this. And God gave humanity the, the rights to cultivate and to, to bring it about. He's not doing it for us, but we're doing it as image bearers underneath him, and that's our, that's our task now until Jesus comes and it, in the new heavens and new earth, that task, I believe, gets restored to us. And it all commences again. And, and the tree in the Garden of Eden that led us to this fallen evil is replaced with the tree that, that's leaves are for our healing and that bears fruit. And then we're all ushered into this new creation. The Bible begins with creation and it ends with a new creation. It's such beautiful parallelism to say that there is a world that God has made for us. And and the way we anticipate it now is to live cultivating what God has called us to do. And, and, and to use all those resources, even in this fallen world, it's, it's developing it, developing our piece of the planet, our area of calling, what we were uniquely, here's what the Bible says, I believe, that each of us have a unique um, fingerprint in our personality and our, our 
interest and the things that make us feel most alive. And God's glory is when we express what it means to be most alive in all these different endeavors. And so there's no sacred and secular, like, well, if you want to really do something for God, you better be a missionary or work for the church. It's like, no, every square inch of this world belongs to Jesus Christ by creation. And he's claimed it, counterclaimed it again in redemption. And he's unleashed us to go. And so discipleship is not something we do in a worship service or a prayer meeting or a Bible study. Discipleship is what happens out there. It's like, it's, it's like the race is on the racetrack. It, this is the pit stop to fuel up so that we, we go and we, we then disclose what God has done. And so this dominion is over everything. The birds of the air, the, the fish of the sea. It's not exploitative. Again, it's not to ignore the impact. It's to cultivate it, to do something useful and beautiful that bears the care of God the way that, that God is for us. And, and so we're, it says, you know, even the, the animals, and then it says even the creepy crawlies, the things, it's a, even the crawling things. I don't know how you take dominion over there. The way I do with a creepy crawly is something like that. Um, but, but we have dominion over all of that in this, in this role that answers back to God. But there's one thing missing that we don't, aren't given dominion over. And it's something that causes a lot of brokenness in the world. And I love that when our, our activist pastor, Pastor Yvonne, brought this out in, in one of the meetings I was with him in. And he said, you know, in Genesis 1, we're given dominion over every single thing except for one thing. We're not giving dominion over fellow image bearers. And he says, yet yeah, this is the thing that every dictator must have, right? They're not content with just taking the the mining rights and the agricultural rights and the wealth of their country, but what they've got to do also is squash people who were made in God's image. And it's almost as if there's a, a zero-sum game of, of, of value and power, and so I'm going to inflate my value at the expense of someone else, and this is why there's oppression in our world. And so part of our calling in a fallen world is to, to engage where there's oppression, uh, because oppression exists when people distort the image of God and basically want to idolize and worship themselves and so they inflate themselves to take over in other people's lives a role that only God should have in their lives. And they do it in a way that God would never do because they actually deflate the perfect and infinite worth in that individual. And so they inflate themselves and deflate others. They value themselves and they devalue others. They exalt themselves and they debase others. And by doing that, they're debasing God because God stamped his image on them. Amen. And so every form of exploitation, and you might say in any culture where people are being oppressed, it's because there are image bearers who have twisted that image and they are playing the role of God in that broken situation, that person's life that they were never called to play. And so in our own, own American story in 1619, when 20 slaves from Africa arrived, that was the story, the, the debasing of other infinite worthy image bearers and, and into that story. And eventually it, it accumulated until by the time of the Civil War, there were almost 4 million uh, oppressed in slavery. But you know that in our world right now, there are over 27 million slaves. There are far more slaves in our world who they don't, I mean, I see some people leaving the sermon and I'm sure it's because they're overwhelmed with the profundity of what I'm saying and they just can't take anymore. But individuals who are enslaved don't have the freedom to leave. They can't quit. 
They can't say, I want benefits, or I want something better than the, this, the slim gruel that is sustaining my life, or I don't want to be sexually exploited, as most of them are, either through sexual trafficking or sexual opportunism. 27 million. And so it's that role, it's that pushing against the one thing God said, you can't do this, that people do. And so you're, you're going to be handed a, a, a sheet of paper with an opportunity to join with those who are fighting human trafficking. And it's part of image bearing. It's part of freeing the earth because here's the reality that when we understand the power that God gave us, part of our power to flourish is a power that makes sure that other people flourish. Through the jobs that we do, through the way that we do them, through the fact that every single endeavor, there is no secular job, but every job is an opportunity to love somebody in some way. And so uh, we're called to that role because when Jesus Christ came in the fullness of power, the fullness of God dwelling in him, and he walked this planet that was by his design, that he brought into being, that belonged to him by creation, and he came not to defeat the ones who were marring his image and defacing the planet, but he came rather to die for them. And ultimately, Jesus experiences what is really the opposite of Genesis. Genesis is the bringing order and the bringing light from darkness and the setting things up. Um, Jesus experienced the defragmation. Uh, Jesus experienced on the cross darkness descend upon him for the first time. And it Isaiah 53, it says his face was marred more than the face of any human being had ever been marred because he experienced that punishment upon him. Such was his love. It's unthinkable. I can't fathom what it, what it took for Jesus to love us like that, that he would experience that so that he could secure the renewal and the order that God had designed in the first place. That's how the story of our lives with our broken present reclaims our divine blueprint and get set back on the heavenly trajectory. It's through what Jesus has done. And, and he invites us one to re-enchant ourselves with this world because of the world of love that produced it and that has claimed it and has secured it through the blood of Christ and offers us, if we'll have that relationship and come back into surrender to Christ in repentance and a life to say, Lord, use my life, use my occupation, use whatever years or whatever months I have in whatever I can do to be one who is, is bringing order out of chaos, who's, who's categorizing light from darkness, who's bringing service, and who's exercising whatever powers I have, not in a selfish way to pile up things for myself and my own amusement in purposelessness, but to that which will empower and safeguard and lift up who you are and lift up other image bearers. That's what it means to flourish, to be enchanted with this world because of the world that produced it, and to express yourself in ways that bring the cultivation of what God has called you to do for his glory. We're gonna take the Lord's Supper and be reminded of what it costs Jesus to redeem us. And as we do that, I want this to be an opportunity for you and I to say yes and no in our lives to different things, to say no to whatever it is that might rule over us, that might um, push us out of the path of pursuing what God wants for our life. God didn't want any other thing to have dominion over us except himself. So it's a time to cast those things out and then it's a time to say, God, yes, I received Jesus. I received the restoration of who I ultimately am and I wanna live that out in creative, expressive ways that are uniquely and newly enchanted with who you are. I wanna say yes to the opportunity to join in the dance and the praise of the Trinity and to live this life out.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the storyline of the Bible. We thank you for how it, it humbles us, but it also uplifts us. It humbles us without debasing us. It reminds us of the great value and love that you have for us. And it allows the backdrop of the most beautiful thing we can see in creation. It allows those things to speak to us. Your creator loves you. Your creator delights in you. Your creator wants an encounter and relationship with you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he paid that price that we can be renewed in our walk and relationship with you. And Lord, as we partake of the poured out blood and the broken body of Jesus, may we say no to anything that would rule over us that mars your image. And may we welcome and say yes to whatever you would call us to do for you. Make this a time of encounter with you and prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.